We're going to be in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 10 and 11. I easily can slip into the mode of talking about the revelations. This is not a collection of revelations. It is the book of the revelation, the revealing or the unveiling of Jesus. In his glory as King of kings and Lord of lords and his kingdom on earth. So in the book of the Revelation, we come to chapter 10, but how we get there, just a brief review. In chapter 1, we see that the world is not right. Actually, the world is separated from God, much as John has been exiled away from his churches. But those churches in chapters 2 and 3 are encouraged, strengthened, exhorted to stay faithful in the midst of an evil age in which they live. But God's righteousness is coming. The Lamb of God, the Son, Jesus, is worthy to take the scroll of God's judgment. The Lamb is worthy to open that scroll and to begin a sequence of judgments upon the earth for the earth's rebellion. And the Lamb is worthy to bring God's judgment finally because He has already first borne the judgment of God for anyone who would receive it from him. Anyone who would say, yes, God, I believe you concerning Jesus who was already judged for my sin, for my guilt, in my place. I trust him for your rescue, your salvation. And so the Lamb is worthy, and he begins to open that scroll in a series of seven seals leads into a series of seven trumpets, which will then lead into a series of seven bold judgments, which we haven't got into yet. But those first seals, and then the trumpets that follow, it's like there's an increasing severity that is intended to yet give opportunity. That over, I take it, almost a seven-year period, there's this increasing experience of judgment upon the earth that people cannot overlook, they cannot miss. They realize, they see it for what it is, they recognize this, the wrath of God has come. And there's an opportunity to respond. That in wrath, God has remembered mercy and he continues to provide opportunity. The last three trumpets are the worst of all so far. These severe woes or doom. The fifth trumpet trumpet was five months of torment. Five months of torment without being able to die. And yet, in the midst of that, that's five months of opportunity to call upon God for deliverance rather than to curse him because of this judgment. The sixth trumpet brings a hellish war where a third of the population is killed. And yet two-thirds in that terrible time have the opportunity to yet call upon the name of the Lord. The final woe, the seventh trumpet, is going to introduce a series of of very severe judgments which are going to come in rapid-fire succession. I take it as I put Revelation and Daniel together. I think all of those seven bold judgments are going to occur in a 45-day period. It's going to be rapid-fire. But we haven't got there yet. Those aren't going to be described until chapter 16. So there's a bit of the book of the Revelation in between the, the trumpets and those bowls, and it's a pause to consider. In chapters 12 to 15, we're going to have a pause, an interlude, a, a, some scene changes, even some flashbacks that are intended to show us what all of this is all about. 
Why has this judgment come? And some other aspects about the enemy and the spiritual realm and the spiritual dynamic to both the sin and rebellion as well as God's judgment. That is coming. In fact, I had planned to survey through all of that quite quickly, and I decided, you know, that's, that's a very confusing part of the book. We're actually going to slow down starting next week. But, but even before that, there's another pause, and that's in our section today in chapters 10 and 11. In our section today, there's a pause that causes us to, before we consider more or the finality of the judgment, there's something about the emotional impact of it that God wants us to get. There's something about God's own heart here in the midst of this judgment that we dare not miss. It would be easy for us to be eager merely for the coming of our Lord and his kingdom, the, the elimination of all enemies, and, and his coming will be sweet. His kingdom will be wonderful. And yet the elimination of his enemies will actually include people that you know. It will include people who you care about. And the realization that the fullness of our salvation and enjoyment of the kingdom of God upon the earth will also mean the end of the opportunity for those who have refused him to be rescued. And that's why that realization of his coming is sweet to our taste. And yet as we digest it, there's something sad something bitter, something grievous about it as well. And that's a heart of God's, that, that's part of God's own heart toward his righteous judgment that we could easily miss. And that is unfolded to us in the midst of these chapters. So I want to give you, in case I get lost along the way, I want to give you the roadmap in advance. Two sentences will help, help me summarize these two chapters. When our waiting is over, the first chapter is going to speak to our waiting will be over. How long, O oh Lord, we sang, but our waiting will be over. And when our waiting is over, it will be sweet and yet bitter. There will be joy there, but there's some grief to it as well. When our waiting is over, it will be sweet and yet bitter. So then, in light of that, being confident of God's coming kingdom we will courageously make Jesus known. That's the big picture of where we're going. When our, when our waiting is over, it is sweet, not bitter. So then in the confidence of his coming kingdom, we will courageously make Jesus known in the present hour. All right, let's jump in. Where do I get that from in these two, two chapters? Let's, let's start in, 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 in the book of Revelation chapter 10 and verse 1. I'll read the first seven verses. We'll read each section and talk a little bit about it, try to put it all together. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. 
But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the, on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there should be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. All right, well, there's this angel, and this is a spectacular angel. This is at least a very high and powerful archangel. Perhaps some, some think this is Michael himself, the only uh, identified archangel in the scriptures. Some think, actually, this is Jesus as a manifestation of God, like you had the angel of the Lord, the manifestation of the Lord in the Old Testament. Because of the description, and he, and he roars like a lion, and he has this great authority and power. I don't think it's, a, it's, it's Jesus. I think it is another angel for, for, for a couple of reasons. One of those reasons is that, that the, the Greek word there for, for another angel is typically a word that's normally used, not always, but normally for another of the same kind. I think Jesus is shown to us later on, but he's identified as one like the Son of Man again. Also, this angel, he, 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 he swears with an oath by the one who created. And John makes clear in John chapter 1 of his gospel that Jesus is the one who, who by him all things were created and apart from Jesus nothing was made that was made. So I'm having a hard time here seeing Jesus swearing by himself. If he was swearing by his father, I think he would have worded that differently because of his own identity. But that's not the point. I know I just spent a minute explaining that. Why, why did I do that? That's not even the point. There's these seven thunders here. And the seven thunders, they sound and they, it, it communicates something. It says something. And, and you're wondering, what is it that the thunders have said? And God said, I think the voice from heaven is God, even as we've seen in the Gospels, that, that, that don't write it down. That's not for us to know. There's some things that, that are not for us to know. And I think especially the first century church was not to know that. I have my own personal theories, but... I'm not going to speculate before all of you up here. We can, we can talk about Bob's private little heresies on the side. <laughs> what is important here, what is the main point, is at the end of verse 6 and into verse 7, that there will be no more delay. That's the main point. The end has come. God has given opportunity in the increasing severity, but now the window is rapidly closing. There will be no more delay. The time has come. Judgment will finish. We wait today. We cry out, O oh Lord, how long? And yet the day is coming when there will be no more delay. We long for the ending of evil, don't you? In the midst of all the stuff that goes on in life and the, the things that have occurred or you've learned about and endured even in the last week, and our hearts long for what's wrong to be made right, don't you long for that even within yourself? Why do I still wrestle with this? Why am I still tempted by that? And you long for the Lord to 
make all that's wrong right, that indeed your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That day that we long for will come. The ending of evil and God's removal of the rebellion against him. But when God ends the rebellion against him, he will, there will also be the removal of the rebels. And that's where the sweet, as we digest it, as we think about it, as we realize those who will not be with us in the joy of his presence, there's a sadness there. There's a grief there. There's a bitterness there. It's probably worse than that whole box of Nilla wafers. When our waiting is over, and it will be over, there will be no more delay, but when our waiting is over, it will be sweet and yet bitter. Look at verse 8. Then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the, the scroll, the little scroll. This is a different, smaller scroll than we saw earlier in chapter 4 and 5. And he said to me, take and eat it, and I will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, and I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, the bitterness, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So there's some background here. I included some of this background in your notes as well. There's background here with a little scroll, a scroll of judgment upon the earth that the prophet Ezekiel is also told to take and to eat. And he's to digest this reality of God's truth concerning judgment that is sure and is going to happen. And for John, the reality of God's judgment, which is sure and is going to happen, the reality of that is good news for John. It's good news for those churches who have been persecuted and attacked, and yet, there's a bitterness about it. There's some grief in the midst of that. To us, the idea of God's righteous judgment finally arriving is sweet. But there's a bitter implication. That bitter reality is why God continues to wait. You know, the Scripture says that judgment is God's strange work. God does not delight in the judging, in the condemnation of his enemy. God is not willing, in fact, that any, God does not desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance and receive his offer of salvation in Jesus. We know from even this book that that won't happen. But that's God's heart. Is that my heart? Or am I so enamored about the glory of the future that I long for that joy and I don't really care that there will be many who will not share it? That's something about the heart of this matter that God doesn't want us to miss because he wants in his children to nurture his own heart of compassion for others. And a burden for the loss that caused God, who so loved a rebellious world, that he sent his son, that we would have something of that same burden and compassion that would 
cause us toward significant sacrifice as well because of it. It's normal to rejoice when our adversary faces adversity. Have you ever had one of those experiences where somebody was driving foolishly and recklessly and even dangerously and they could have caused you to be hurt or somebody else on the highway and they're cutting in and out and they cut you off too and then they zip out ahead and you, you lose them but a few miles down the road, there they are and they're the ones this time with the flashing lights behind them and you say, aha, yeah, good. And you rejoice when their evil deed has caught up with them. Yes! It's normal to rejoice when your adversary faces adversity, but Jesus did not pray that way. Jesus prayed to those who pounded the nails in, or concerning those who pounded the nails in. He prayed concerning those who gathered around and and mocked and ridiculed and spat on him. And he said, Father... Forgive them. They don't know what they do. And one of the things that concerns us, one of the things that puzzles us as we read this book is is as this judgment continues to roll out, it seems like God is holding his hand back. It's like he's grabbing the earth and shaking it like a rebellious child. Please, you've got to listen. Time is running out. But he gives more time. And we wish God would just hurry up about it. And yet, when we think about it, there's people that I care about that are going to be left out. And I can't make them be brought in. But I can pray for that the same way that Jesus did. It's kind of like this bittersweet it's kind of, it's true also in life and death, isn't it? The scripture says that precious to the Lord is the death of one of his saints. That was part of my week this week. A friend of mine, long as we've been here at the church, Bob Reiser, passed away this week. Bob decided early on I was going to be his friend. So along the way, he let me know about that. He, he chose me because he was Bob and I was Bob. And that was about enough for Bob. Not only that, we shared the same birthday, so I was his birthday brother. There was a few decades between us, but that didn't matter so much. And he and his wife, Jessie, sweet couple, fun couple. He was a jokester, but in, in, a, in, in a kind way, not a mean way. And yet, his, as, he's, as he approached 90 years old, of course, his health began to fade. He long missed his wife, uh, Some of his last words, he was singing a song. I want to go and be with Jesus when I die. And it was probably a day or so. And he was. That song of prayer was answered. And we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I should add in here, his memorial service will be at Evergreen Gardens on Saturday. This coming Saturday at 3 p.m. So I'll throw that out there. That's, that's after the women's function, I think. So you can do both. But there's a, there's, a, there's a sweetness to that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in the Lord's presence, there is fullness of joy, right? 
You've experienced this with the, with the passing of a loved one. And yet, in the midst of that joy that we know is true, that hope that we are confident in, is there not also, is there not also the bitter grief of the loss of the friendship and relationship here in our present? We taste that. There's a, there's a, a sweet in our confident hope, and yet there's a bitter, grievous reality to it. That's why we, we don't grieve as those who have no hope, and yet we do grieve. And we can give the hope that we have to others around us that need it. So then, being confident of our hope, being confident of the future, being confident of God's kingdom which will come, we will courageously make Jesus known. As we move into chapter 11 now, we're reminded then, okay, being confident that there's no more delay, being, being confident that, that the sweetness of his coming and the finishing of his judgment, even though there's a bitterness to that, we are confident of his coming. And chapter 11 reminds us of that, both at the beginning at the end, and then the last move I want to make is actually tucked in between those two, bookends, framing it. So let's focus on the, our confidence of his coming kingdom. Verse 11, or chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I was given a measuring rod. So he's just said, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. There's a reality that they're all going to face. God's wrath is coming upon the world. And then I'm given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I'm told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. Well, that's odd. What does that fit in? And then there's another, there's another scene change in the midst of this, this pause and interlude. And then we pick it up in verse, in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's that hallelujah chorus, right? There is the confident expectation of the coming reality. And the 24 elders who sat on, the, on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations raised, your wrath has come. There's Psalm 2, Psalm 97. The time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying those who have destroyed the earth. God's kingdom is coming. That is our confident expectation. That is the certain reality. Now, what does the measuring the temple have to do with it? Well, if you were familiar, as they were in the first century, with your Old Testament, you would have picked up on a hint going back to Ezekiel chapter 40. After God shows Ezekiel that this nation destroyed, this nation of Israel seemingly eliminated in the Babylonian captivity, this nation has gone, they have vanished, the nation of Israel is dead. And God likens it to a valley full of dried, sun-bleached bones. And he says to Elijah, can these bones live? 
And then you have the valley, the vision of the dry bones. And the dry bones are revived and flesh comes on them again. And they are, they are resurrected into a living army. And that's what God is going to do with his people. A nation will be born in a day. Israel will be revived. And then you get to Ezekiel chapter 40, and there are these visions of the future and Messiah's kingdom. And Ezekiel is shown the detailed measurements of the future temple. Babylon has just destroyed the temple. And Ezekiel is given in a couple of chapters these detailed measurements of this future temple. All of that parallels John and these Christians experience. Because in A.D. 70, the Romans come along. And God's temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, there on that mount, is wiped clean. The temple is gone. And yet, there needs to be a temple when the Lord comes. There's a temple that the Antichrist actually takes over. It's prophesied in Daniel. It's, it's, it's described by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Antichrist will, will set himself up in the temple of God, and there he'll declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped as God. But in John's day, there's no temple. Well, there will be. And I think the Lord is reminding John that what he has promised, he is going to do. There will be a temple in the midst of Jerusalem that will be trampled by the nations for three and a half years, 42 months. And yet his kingdom will come. It's like they don't even see the means for God's promises to be fulfilled. That which we expected to happen even in our generation, in that first generation, that which they expected to happen has not happened and now the temple is gone and they wonder, can it happen at all? You ever get the feeling that way? What God has said and how you thought it was going to happen and it hasn't happened and you wonder, will God's promises be realized at all? And the answer is yes, they will. And that's what God is giving John here. It might not strike us the same way because we don't have that same Old Testament depth of background. The emotion that is in that move in Ezekiel chapter 40. That's supposed to be conveyed as well. Out of, out of complete loss, a glorious hope. That's what God is doing for John here in a little bit of measuring the temple for curtains, if you will. It is going to be, just as God has said, just as he has revealed through his servants, the prophets. And we get the full declaration of that at the end of the chapter. And what we're supposed to take away from that is a restatement that there be no more delay. The results of God's judgment are sure. No matter what your today looks like, no matter how it seems in the midst of the stuff you're going through right now, your future in Jesus is promising. Can I say it that way? No matter today, your future in Jesus is very promising. Because God has promised so. And our future is golden. Our future is glorious. You remember that song? Sometimes the day seems long. The trial's hard to bear. We're tempted in those times to... We're tempted to complain, to murmur, and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus.
being confident of God's coming kingdom, we will then courageously make Jesus known in the present hour. Where do I see that? That's the center. What the bookends of his coming are around, that's the center of chapter 11. Look at verse 3. This is one of the strangest and most intriguing glimpses in the book of the Revelation. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Who are they? They will prophesy for 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth, that kind of sounds like a John the Baptist and Elijah-ish kind of thing. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. These witnesses are lampstands? Okay, that... He's used lampstands before. The churches were lampstands. Uh, These witnesses are olive trees. Where is this coming from? It's coming from Zechariah chapter 4. Again, there's our Old Testament lack, but but there's there's a clear image there that's presented where two servants of God, the high priest and the governor, Joshua and Zerubbabel, very real people given a very impossible task of being the ones to lead the rebuilding of a temple and a worshipful people in Jerusalem after the exile. How can they do it? They cannot. But God's promise to them in Zechariah chapter 4, as he refers to them as the lampstand filled by the oil of the Spirit that gives life. As, as God compares them to two olive t- trees. Now he pulls that image forward again. And in Zechariah chapter 4, the promise is made, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We're like these. How are these two witnesses, in the midst of the most terrible time on earth, how would two particular servants chosen by the Lord, how would they maintain a faithful witness for three and a half years in this most terrible of times? Not by their own power, not by their own might, but by God's Spirit, says the Lord. That's the imagery, that's the background that's brought forward into this section. These two olive trees, these two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes, just like Elijah did to those soldiers, but the fire was from heaven. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Again, sounds Elijah-ish. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Well, that sounds kind of like Moses, doesn't it? So you've got these two. In fact, some some commentators think that these are actually really, even as Malachi promised, before that great and terrible day of the Lord, I will send you Elijah, and here he is. John the Baptist came in the, in the power and spirit of Elijah, but now Elijah himself has been brought back by the Lord for this witness. Maybe it's Elijah and Moses. Some people want to suggest, well, no, it must be Elijah and Enoch. Those kind of speculations are not the point at all. But the point is, in the worst of times, in the most difficult of times, in the midst of the confidence of his coming kingdom, God chooses to establish, to set, to appoint, and to empower his witnesses to the very end. And they couldn't do it. 
but it's not by their might. It's not by their power. It's by the Spirit, says the Lord. And he established them, and he will keep them. And when they, in verse 7, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, we haven't even met him yet, but he's coming, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, what city is this that would... Okay, here's a time when symbolism is being used, or like an allegory is being used in Revelation. We're not supposed to take that literally. This is not Sodom that this witnessing is occurring in. What city is it? It's not an Egyptian city. It's the city where their Lord was crucified. This is Jerusalem. Jerusalem has be Jerusalem, God's holy city. Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye, where He has set His own presence to dwell in the midst of His people. The holy city has become Sodom. It has become Egypt, out of which God redeemed His people and brought them out of. It's kind of like in the book of Judges. One sentence on the book of Judges. Israel, God's unique people, became like the Canaanites they were supposed to take the place of. Instead of taking over from the Canaanites, they became the Canaanites. That's the book of Judges. Here, Jerusalem has become Sodom, has become Egypt. And yet in the midst of that environment, evil is rampant. And yet God sets his witnesses who will make him known in life and in death. Watch this. So there they are for three and a half. Uh, the, the beast rises against them, arrests, attacks them, arrests them, executes them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of that city for three and a half days. Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations all around the earth will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. How sick is that? How far has it gone that this is the new Christmas? This is the new party. We're going to exchange gifts because finally these two, finally Elijah and Moses or some like them are done. They're killed. They're gone. And we're going to rejoice over those decaying corpses laying in the street still. How ugly is that? But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet. Great, fill fell, great fear fell on those who saw them. You think? Then they heard a loud voice from heaven. I mean, just when you think um, three and a half day old Elijah and Moses are coming after you. I mean, this is worse than the zombie movie you saw. I don't know why you watched them. But anyway, this is worse than that. And graciously, God says, come up here. And God calls them up, resurrected from the dead, just like Lazarus. And you know, Lazarus made a bigger splash in his resurrection than I think he did in his, in his initial life prior to that. Afterwards, the Jews wanted to kill, Elijah, or kill Lazarus as well as Jesus because Lazarus is telling everybody how Jesus brought him back out of the tomb. And that's these two now. That in their lives and even in their deaths, they were witness to the greatness of God. 
They went up to heaven in a cloud. Their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people are killed. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third, the trumpet is about to come. The rest were terrified. And yet they recognized this is God's hand at work. Did they really believe? Were they actually, was there a revival moment in Jerusalem that day? Will there be? That I don't know. We can't tell from the language. But what we can see, that even as the rest who don't die give glory to the God of heaven, they recognize God as God at work in their midst, so also folks that you know can see God's hand at work in your witness and in your life and in your courageous sacrifice that is counter to the movement of the world at large because you endeavor to be faithful to the Lord who has saved you and show Him, even if people don't want to hear it or see it. You know, by God's grace, not by might, not by power, But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, you and I can be something like those witnesses. Now these are the chosen of the Lord. Are not you? These are his anointed ones. His spirit is upon them. But is not the spirit of the living God indwelling every true believer in Jesus? Do you not have the spirit of the living God? Cannot you say, the spirit of the Lord is is upon me and has anointed me to declare the gospel? I know, those are Jesus' words. And if you are a believer in him, indwelled by his spirit, those are your words. The spirit of the Lord is upon you. And like he uses these two, I know it's a unique moment. I know it's a unique situation. And these are very much Elijah or Moses-ish servants and prophets. And yet, what I'm telling you is in the midst of our day, God will use you and I in the same way. Because the Spirit is upon us. It is not by our might. It is not by our power. It is by his Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. When our waiting is over, it will be sweet and yet bitter. And so, being confident that the end is coming, being confident that his kingdom is near, we will, like these witnesses, we will courageously, even sacrificially, make Jesus known. We will make him known even as Peter writes to the church. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as aliens who don't belong here, you're visiting your temporary residence, you're only passing through, this world is not our home. As sojourners and exiles, I urge you to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct, keep your manner of life among the nations honorable, glorifying to God, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, still they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day when he visits them. That day of his visitation is coming, and you and I, like those witnesses, in the midst of our confidence, In his kingdom, 
let us courageously make Jesus known by how we verbally share our hope with people around us whom we, like our Father, compassionately want to be included in his rescue. Let us share our hope by what we say to them, but also how we live among them, that they might, in our lives, in our testimony, glorify our Father who is in heaven. Our waiting will be over. That day will be bittersweet. There will be some that are not included. But God, would you use us to include some? Because in confidence of his kingdom, we have courageously made him known to people around us. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded of the reality through this book that there are people around us who are not saved. There are people around us who have not trusted themselves in God's rescue. And Father, we, we pray still. The Lord, like you would use an Elijah or a Moses. And Father, we see them as very different. But are they not human just like us? Are they not then empowered by your Spirit, by your grace? even as we are. So, Father, as you have so wonderfully used them, and perhaps will still, Father, in this moment, in this hour, in these days, would you use us? Father, put in our minds, even right now, people around us, that we would want to have the opportunity to be able to share something of our hope and faith in Jesus with and Father, guard how we even live before them and with them. Father, willing to sacrifice, willing to show something of the giving of ourselves for the sake of others that would show them something of Jesus. And Father, open their hearts, we pray. Persons that we're thinking of right now, Father, would you open their hearts to receive your rescue before it's too late. We ask it in Jesus' name.